listening at Paper Cuts. Uh, I'm Jo Franke. I'm head of the Schalnippels Lab of the Jan van Eyck uh, Academy in uh, Maastricht. Uh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> no, 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 that's great. <laughs> we, we are now identified. We know who you are. We know what we're listening to. Mm -hmm. um, but we're here for the, the third Magical Riso Conference, mm -hmm. which happens uh, every two years here in Maastricht. And to give the listeners a bit of a sense of what everything is, can you kind of describe what you were intending to do with Magical Riso this year? Mm -hmm. Uh, this year, um, different from a previous year, I wanted to make a longer event so that people, that was a bit more relaxed in between uh, talks, so people could uh, network much more, uh, take it easy, uh, know the first day there's still another opportunity to meet people, so that it was just a more relaxed atmosphere. Um, but uh, the main thing this year was that I wanted to also go actually beyond the normal uh, Rizzo uh, uh, talks, like uh, silver ink uh, cartridges, uh, why is there no cyan? So we tried to um, extend it a little bit uh, by inviting also artists that had no history with uh, Rizzo at all and worked with me for the first time with the technique. Uh, the, uh, the last year. We also wanted to give the audience an impression of how the Jan van Eyck Academy functions actually normally. So by included, including a, a thing like an in-lab what we have, it's a research group uh, that uh, researches on a very abstract level sometimes uh, certain um, uh, issues. Um, so that the people actually felt they were on a different place than an uh, art book fair or whatever, uh, but in a, in a surrounding uh, of this postgraduate institute. So that was were the main things. Uh, go away from the classical research thing. Um, I did that by defining a team, and the team that was actually a monumental research. Um, and then not only in the meaning of big, but uh, in the meaning of a monumental approach uh, to visual things, like <coughs> monumental can also be very little. Uh, it's not, not only uh, big. And the in-lab group, uh, they uh, researched it on a very nice way by taking uh, the book The Art of Forgetting um, on monumentality. And... Um, I, I liked it so much because we used a lot of Rizzo that we pasted on the walls, so we have to destroy the work after uh, the exhibition is finished. Yeah. So, and that's an art of forgetting, or the art that will be forgotten. Huh? So I, I really liked that theme, um, that you work with artists, for example, that sell their paintings for tons, and then here, suddenly, it will be scraped off the wall. Huh? So I really like that. And when you read uh, the book, um, The Art of Forgetting, it's also nice that you see that, um, that uh, other cultures uh, approach um, a monumentality in a different way. So like we, we build statues in bronze for eternity, but other cultures, they uh, make monuments that are destroyed after the ceremony. And that is actually a very interesting point of view. Uh, 
Uh, um, if you saw, for example, in the discussions of the conference, people were, were talking about the archival qualities of a risograph, so that artists are afraid of fading colors and so on. Uh, that's a typically Western approach. Huh? So, uh, yeah, so, um, so why, actually? Why is there so much attention on uh, archival qualities? I always say to uh, my participants, if the work survives you, you have no problem anymore. So, <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, it's not in your hands, so yeah. that's the office. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, no, yeah, that's more or less the new approach for this year. Mm-hmm. And this being my first year, and I said this last night at the at the end of the conference, I felt like one of the great successes of this conference was the amount of time that you built into the program to allow for these conversations to happen outside of the main room. Mm-hmm. There was these uh, the group conversations at the end of each day that were uh, moderated either by yourself or Nina that gave space for different risograph printers to uh, raise ideas or topics, but what I found to be so valuable about being here was also the times in line at lunch or during the breakout sessions looking through uh, the studio that we're in now with other participants. And I felt like that's where so many of these side conversations and relationships get developed. And that's really a wonderful gift that you provided for everyone coming into the conference because it fosters this larger community. Mm-hmm. And. Um, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit towards that idea, the development of community within the risograph printing world and the necessity for Magical Riso to exist as a common uh, gathering point. Mm-hmm. And maybe one way to talk about that is the impetus to do the first Magical Riso six years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, well. Uh, building a community with uh, research people is, on one hand, it's very difficult uh, because the people are uh, really mostly working on their own. Um, um, they are uh, really independent people. Um, uh, but on the other hand, the uh, research community actually creates itself by uh, uh, context that you have to the shared passion. Uh, so if you share a passion, you already have a community. It's about that passion. And um, so then I provide, with Magical Rezo, I provide a platform um, for people to meet. And um, when we started in, in 2014 with the first Magical Rezo, it was actually meant as a, a one-time event. And uh, But then I was uh, really shocked that people came from all over the world just to visit this event, and that it was so positive uh, uh, rewarded by, by people. Um, and then in, a, uh, yeah, in the heat of the, the night, we claimed, okay, let's do a, a biannual. And I regret that ever since, because that means that I <laughs> have to continue uh, this biannual uh, gathering. Um, but then the second time, it already uh, became a kind of a, a iconic event, especially also due to the name, I think. Yeah. Um, so Magic Reason was then a kind of a, 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 an anchor in, in Rizzo land, uh, where, uh, uh, yeah, where people refer to as the place in the world where uh, uh, we all come together uh, with the group. So, um, 
uh, and then I got, the, after last time, I got the energy to, uh, to risk a bit more, like uh, inter introducing also non-reserve-related things uh, that only became related uh, throughout the year while working uh, with, uh, uh, with the artists. Huh? Yeah. So that you slowly uh, uh, soaked an artist into Rizzo. Huh? Yeah. And uh, so that's, that's really interesting, but, but it's also a risk huh? because you never know how the uh, community at large reacts on that. Huh? So, uh, but I'm, I'm, myself, I'm easily bored. So um, when something is a success, I never want to repeat it. So I'm also thinking about what will I do in 2020 uh, that it's not uh, mimicking this uh, uh, episode. So, uh, yes, keeps me an hard time. I'm already thinking about 22. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah, so that's actually the, the development, the evaluation of uh, how it became to be like it is now. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, one of my favorite aspects of the presentations were the people that did not have much experience with the risograph who you brought in from the outside mm -hmm. and that did really help to strengthen the idea that the risograph is kind of in between the mimeograph and screen printing mm -hmm. in terms of in terms of process and everything being stencil based and uh Sigrid Callan's conversation at the beginning of the of the first day I thought was in, an incredible opening mm -hmm. uh to hear her really talk about how she was going back to the machine and playing with the detritus of it and all these elements that we kind of toss or throw away even though there's so much ink left in and mm -hmm. masters and, and stuff like this. And maybe that's a good way to start talking about um, other aspects of the Charles Naples lab here because the risograph is just one element of what you do. I'm sitting in this beautiful lab with large windows and there's letterpress equipment and you have an etching press and a screen print set up. Mm -hmm. So uh, what is Risograph's place within within this space and within the printmaking program that you're running? Mm -hmm. Yeah, then first maybe it's good to to um, uh, to tell something about how Risograph came into the Jovenek Academy. Yeah, please. And that uh, um, that has to do with a completely reset we had uh, um, uh, some eight years ago. There was there were serious budget cuts, mm -hmm. and so we had to reinvent the institute actually. And uh, then, um, in that time, I was actually uh, producing um, a lot of offset books. For, I did that for 10, uh, 15 years with uh, designers, with external printers. And I was asked to have an idea about a new printing lab. And that gave me really completely freedom to, to, uh, to create it myself. Um, and one of the major things was that uh, we intended to work more and more with only fine arts people, even a writer we considered to be fine artists. Yeah. And um, in my practice the years before, I noticed that artists, um, when they have to make books, they are really not happy because when you make books in the uh, outside world, in the angry world, uh, dangerous world, then you... Uh, have to communicate with um, with printers in a very abstract and indirect way, um, and you have to to throw it into a print shop or a binder, and then you have to wait for the truck to come with your books, and you are mostly disappointed. Huh? Yeah. Um, and that is why, because artists want to be very 
close to the process. And uh, then I said, okay, I want to have a print shop where someone can come uh, enter with an idea and leaves with an edition. And uh, so what can we do? And uh, another thing was important that uh, the emphasis was on bookmaking, for example, that you also got uh, some peripheral equipment yeah, where you could, um, um, what you could use to make books, but also it should be easy techniques because uh, most of the artists who enter then, they um, uh, are not familiar with printing techniques, but uh, I was looking for a technique that was easy to understand and that is actually the stencil printing because it's just um, where the stencil is open, the ink goes through and where it's closed, it's not. Eh? So uh, stencil technique is very easy. Uh, that's also why we included letterpress because letterpress actually is just a, a potato stamp what you had in kindergarten. Eh? So uh, those are easy to understand, the techniques. Um, another really important thing was the environmental friendly uh, way of working. So we don't want to work with solvents, with acids. Um, there's no uh, climate control in this room. Uh, the, uh, so um, no smells. Uh, yeah. Maybe you can confirm that to the listener. Um, so you, that you feel happy. In the, in, the, in the lab where you work. And all those three things combined uh, made this. So then you automatically come to the risograph. Yeah, so that's uh, um, from the parameters I taught you, that's the outcome. Yeah, you have yeah. to come to the risograph. But I'm not a, a risograph purist. Uh, that's why I also really like to combine techniques. I like to combine the risograph with the com color ink yet, with letterpress, with embossing or screen printing or whatever shows up. <laughs> so I always say we do everything here, but maybe not everything, uh, everything in-house. So we also have uh, a lot of uh, contacts outside for special things like foil printing or something like that. Yeah. Um, so we never refuse uh, a job or uh, refuse a technique. Uh, it's just uh, sometimes we have to make arrangements and extend our lab to the outside world. But yeah. yeah. And how are you? How do you find artists to work with, or how are artists finding you? How do you bring people into the lab? Uh, well, our core business um, is actually our um, residents. Uh, we have uh, thirty to forty residents. Uh, uh, every year a new uh, uh, amount of residents. That's the core business, but on the other hand, we also have to uh, get a little bit of income um, uh, to exist. To uh, exist. So I also work with external artists um, and sometimes with external cultural institutions, uh, so non-commercial uh, institutions. Um, Sometimes it's for me really difficult to find the balance between internal and external. Uh, um, I have really to watch that because uh, I really have to give priority to our uh, um, uh, residents here. But it's also very interesting for the community to have all those guests in house. Oh, yeah. uh, and um, and uh, now I have actually, uh, I worked 
the past years with a lot of very uh, interesting artists, um, and I don't want to lose them because they keep returning back. And that's immediately I'm pointing now on one of our problems is that our growing group of alumni also come back. Yeah. Eh? So that gives me a hard time because uh, you never you uh, refuse an alumnus when he comes back and wants to continue working with you. Uh, so, um, actually, I have a luxury problem. <laughs> but that's also, then you also have, it's a bad word, but I also can do cherry picking. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, I only can accept the people who I really want to uh, work with. Uh, because I think the way we work here, and sometimes people ask me, don't you want to do more of your own work? Uh, and then I always say, um, the work what I do here with the artists is my own work. So um, when you work so one-on-one, -on -one, we always work one-on-one -on -one with artists. I don't give classes or whatever. I yeah. always make an appointment. We call it intensive care. And uh, we, you work one-on-one. -on -one and um, while working, uh, the artist also really connects you to their ideas and their work and the other way around. Because... Um, my influence on the result of the work is uh, very big. Uh, sometimes yeah. bigger than uh, other time, but it's very big. So I always consider every outcome as a co-production. Um, only I'm more anonymous than the artist uh, himself, but I, it never has frustrated me. Uh, yeah. So I always uh, saw it as a, as a unique chance to meet interesting people. You get a lot back. And um, that's what people sometimes forget, that it's all about the cooperation between the artist and the printer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's something that you were saying uh, <clears throat> earlier about the way that you're working in the shop of having you know, these wonderful artists coming in and, and wonderful projects to be working on, but also not necessarily giving yourself a deadline to mm -hmm. finish things. So. I was wondering about that open-ended exploration and giving your artists the room to, to expand their ideas into a form that they might not be familiar with if they are working with a book for the first time or mm -hmm. working with stencil printing for the first time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, uh, if you look a little behind you, you see a, a quote from uh, Steidel. Um, I put it there. It's the, the quote is, the book is ready when it's ready. Um, because in the past, I uh, often was fought to, uh, forced to meet deadlines. Uh, people put deadlines on me because they say, when can I do the book launch? When can I plan this? When can I plan that? Now I, uh, and then in the end, when uh, the artists make a mistake themselves or whatever, then suddenly the deadline was more flexible than they told me. <laughs> so I, I stopped that and I said, you only can plan the book launch when we do the last cut on the cutting machine then you can phone your uh, gallery or whatever. Yeah. And uh, so that, uh, it, it, it sounds rude, but it, uh, it's, it's where it's all about. It's the meaning that you are making a product. Eh? So all the suffering and the tears and the efforts, you never see back when the book is there in the world. Eh? And um, uh, so uh, what is time? Eh? You, you need to take time. For example, if you force uh, things, uh, it's bad for the product, bad for the end product. And okay, I 
never, uh, I not always managed to keep, to keep this strict attitude, <laughs> but uh, but uh, I, I try. It's it's my motto. It became my motto, and uh, people accept that yeah. uh, because then you have a completely different start when you start making the book. So I'm um, I keep it in. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No, I really appreciate that. And again, I'm uh, talking with you and, and being in this space is very inspiring on so many different levels. And one of that is the idea of the shop within a larger academy or university and being part of an educational system because uh, being in the States where I'm at, there's such an emphasis on deadlines and assignments. Mm -hmm. um, but you're absolutely right. Like, what is what is time, especially when you're working with a book object that mm -hmm. is uh, that is time based, mm -hmm. and you're compressing time into this object, and it takes time to unfold it and to open it and to look mm -hmm. through it. So, if you're setting your intentions on a deadline, then that affects everything else. Mm -hmm. So, I think you're coming at it with a really wonderful starting point. Uh, yeah, uh, not for the better. So, it influences everything else, but only for the worse. Huh? Yeah, yeah. Um, but I want to uh, go back at the comment you made about the academy here uh, in, as a whole. Yeah. I always uh, say to people, uh, the Schalnipelslab, eh, that's officially Schalnipelslab for printing and publishing, it's just a part of the whole. Um, because we are not only a, 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 print shop, a printing lab, but we are uh, in a bigger community. So I think for us also, the, our uh, auditorium where we have those presentations and talks, our uh, restaurant where we meet, uh, our beautiful gardens, it's too chilly now, but they're really beautiful to hang out. We um, managed to make it work last night. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> okay, yes, that's true. Uh, and, but also my colleague labs like uh, audio video, the, our uh, uh, material workshops and so on, they are all part of the print lab, actually. Huh? So we yeah. cooperate together and so on. So um, um, I always have to emphasize that. Even the, the cleaner is very important in cleaning the lab, huh? that you don't yeah. get dust in your printers and whatever. So um, uh, it's not just to be uh, modest, but uh, it's what, what makes the Jan van Eyck Academy unique. Uh, that's all those things. So I just wanted to have said that. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm very happy you did because it is, you know, my view is the print shop is a very communal space out of necessity because there's so many people that are working. Mm -hmm. And I think that it can operate as a, an interesting, like, hub within a larger university because mm -hmm. it, be, it can have more porous boundaries. Mm -hmm. More but people can be coming in. Yeah, but because it's such, uh, what you said in the beginning, because it's such a nice, light, and open, and uh, uh, big space... Uh, people also come here, uh, s sit and work without anything, uh, want to print. Yeah. So they come here with a laptop and uh, they bring you a coffee and they chat a little bit or they look what is happening and they sit here and listen to the music. Yeah. So that, I think that's a big compliment that people feel at ease here and even uh, want to be here. They come out of the studio and go and sit here and work. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> without printing every, every anything. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. that uh, yeah, that's really nice. Yeah. yeah. And, mm -hmm. a, and a great testament to the environment that you've built here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it it works. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe to to go backwards a little bit. Uh, what got you into printing and publishing? 
and how did you come to the Van Eyck Academy? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a long story. Um, uh, I started here as a participant. So I came from an old-school Bauhaus-like academy. Yeah. And uh, in 1977, I was uh, accepted in uh, this institute. I was very proud. I was uh, the only one of the academy who got in here. And in that time, it already was uh, uh, an institute, a very international institute. Uh, but then uh, it changed to uh, from a regular uh, uh, academy to a workshop that it is actually now. Um, for two years, you could work here. And I must say, I actually uh, was fortunate that it was two years because I was completely shocked and overwhelmed by this international environment. Uh, I remember the, our first trip was to Documenta 6 in, in uh, Kassel. Oh my gosh. And I was completely overwhelmed. And so I needed actually a year to find myself. And so luckily there was a second year uh, where I could uh, start really producing. Yeah. And um, I stayed here till 1980. So I was finishing book and then I worked, I had a practice as an artist for some years, but I came back to do uh, research um, uh, residence here. And then um, uh, the staff asked me if I want to revive the graphic workshop. That was really not uh, good anymore. And I did it together with a colleague. I started to work here part time. Uh, that was in 84, 85. And I just never left. So <laughs> here I am, like a, a fossil, uh, <laughs> a fossil of the Javanegh Academy. And I'm so, uh, not only through the time that I spent uh, already now uh, almost uh, 42 years here, but I'm also very connected to the Institute as it is. Um, yeah, for me, I identify myself completely with the Institute and I get offended when people have uh, critics that I don't agree. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, so it, it just happened. But I did a lot of things here. Uh, I, I started in a classical graphical workshop, like stone lithography, screen print etching, uh, those things. Um, then slowly I introduced computers, end of the 80s. I, uh, I bought the first Mac in the lab. Uh, the director thought I was uh, nuts. Huh? A computer is something for the administration, not for uh, creative things. So, and then the computers got so popular that I, uh, within a month I had to buy uh, another one and a third one. And then it grew so much that uh, I slowly moved from uh, the printing to desktop publishing. And they asked me, uh, there was a big change then uh, by a new director uh, who introduced uh, graphic design in this academy. And he asked me, uh, I see that you are so familiar with computers. Do you want to set up a, a computer lab? And in those days, nobody had a computer. So I got sponsoring from Apple and we set a huge lab uh, with uh, 12 or 13 stations. And there was 24-hour access, and people were always fighting for the stations because uh, it was day and night they worked there. Yeah. And um, so I did that for uh, many years, I think uh, till halfway 90s. Then slowly people 
got their own computers and they came just for in and output, like high-end scanning and, uh, and uh, printing. Uh, so it faded out itself. And uh, then I was mo much more uh, went into the production. I worked together with uh, Jan van Toorn. He is a famous Dutch graphic designer. He worked at RISD at that, uh, at that uh, time. And I did all the uh, computer work for him because he really w he couldn't handle a computer. So I learned a lot. And that slowly uh, slided me into a graphic design. And then I um, started also to, to do graphic design commissions myself. And I started um, um, uh, teaching at the Academy of uh, Architecture in, uh, in Maastricht. I did that for 20 years, uh, aside my, the job I do now here. And um, um, I'm using it, <laughs> you see. <laughs> uh, um, and then um, uh, I uh, got more and more into book production uh, in offset. Uh, we used to have an offset press here, but it was not maintainable actually with a full-time uh, printer. Uh, so we uh, spent a lot of time outside. There was a period that I was 80% of my time with uh, other printers in Europe or binders. So uh, I learned a lot. And um, uh, then the last step was uh, the lab as it is now. But um, it's very, the, the, pre the previous years are very important um, for the way I work now. Because without knowing, you get so much expertise that you approach, I approach Risograph completely different uh, from my colleagues. Yeah. Uh, because I have this uh, offset history, I have that classical graphic design, uh, graphic uh, um, art history. So, um, uh, as I told you before, every risographer works individual. Yeah. So I just started with the machine. I never do workshops or trainings. I don't. I hate them. I just. I say, yeah, give me a problem. I solve it, and then I'm trained. Huh? Uh, I just started with the machine, but with my background. So, and that's why people sometimes, when they see our work, they say, I see that's from the FNAIC. Because um, without knowing, that comes into the, the print work. Oh, yeah. And um, so that's an interesting point when people uh, 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 talk to me, because it goes, it goes very, um, how you call it? It happens without you realizing it, that you have a complete uh, rigsack of um, uh, experiences that you put in this. Yeah. And that's, uh, yeah, I, I think that's a main part uh, of uh, the way how I work now, uh, the history. Yeah. So sometimes it's really good to get old. Hmm? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. mm -hmm. And almost to a to swing back around a little bit to, to Magical Riso, mm -hmm. one of the presentations that I did really appreciate was the, the in-lab presentation mm -hmm. um, during the second day. And I wanted to hear you talk a little bit more about the in-lab concept and how that works within Charles Naples' lab. Well, the, the in-lab actually is uh, um, uh, came to be in a Van Eyck. Uh, um, it's a part of the application procedure. So when, we, uh, when you apply here, you apply with your own proposal, but we also ask you for an in-lab proposal. That means a research proposal you do with other parties. Okay. 
Um, and uh, well, only a few of those proposals uh, actually become an NLAP. Yeah. Uh, but it's just uh, very important that we get our um, uh, new participants, they are part of a community. So we want to uh, get them out of their studios and uh, try to work also work together on uh, projects. Um, actually, an in-lab has to, to start from the bottom. Uh, so it has to be um, an initiative uh, of the participants themselves. Well, having said that, the in-lab I proposed was top-down. Yeah. So I, uh, and I had a hard time to get it done because it, uh, it was completely uh, the wrong way around. Uh, but I wanted to um, uh, connect the Jan van Eyck community to Magical Reason. So not only that I drop 150 people from all over the world here, yeah. uh, and it's a big burden on the, on the life and academy. Uh, so I want to include always our participants, and I uh, discussed it with Huip uh, Haie uh, van der Werf, who is also the curator of the exhibition, um, and he came with the idea, the in-lab is ideal actually for that. So in the end, we, uh, people said, okay, then go ahead. Uh, and uh, we get this group, uh, what I said before, they work with uh, the text of the art of forgetting, to um, to research risicofree and what it is. And it ended up in a book they made together, uh, long talks, uh, um, the presentation uh, at uh, Friday. Um, also, because I wanted to include that the, the, the Magical Riso uh, uh, guests uh, saw how the Jan van Eyck Academy functions. Uh, so this is actually the way we normally do it, with presentations. But, um, and I planned the in-lab presentation before the panel. I thought, okay, that would give a nice jump start to the panel. But actually I was a bit disappointed uh, because there was uh, little response. And I think uh, you were one of the few who said that you really liked it. Uh, so there were some others who really liked it. I was really surprised. But I, I had the idea that um, in a plenary session that people block when things get theoretical and they don't dare to ask something or to comment something. So that's uh, a good lesson for me for the next time. Mm -hmm. um, that uh, like other colleagues, they, they suggest that you have to deal with those matters in smaller groups. And that you refer to the dinners and the lunches we have because on the table, when you sit with eight people or six people, then those things come up. So then suddenly our, uh, people speak up and yeah. uh, say things. So um, that's a lesson for the next time. That's one of the things that we could improve uh, to ma make uh, people feel at ease to also to discuss more abstract things huh, than, yeah. than uh, just technical, nerdy things. Well. Yeah, no, just as you said, I feel like the in-lab being an example of a small group of people coming up with questions mm -hmm. and then trying to present their findings through this research-based practice. Mm -hmm. It is very similar to how this can work within the Magical Reso format, having these smaller groups of people to really break down ideas and mm -hmm. 
tackling everything uh, on a more theoretical level when coming at conversations that are not just, as you said, all about silver ink and why is there no cyan? Mm -hmm. Those more surface questions, I think, do lend themselves to a, a larger group where it's more difficult to really find your voice to to speak out. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, but... Uh, Along, along those lines, are there questions that you wanted to hear discussed within the plenary session that was not really brought to the forefront during the the end sessions at Magical Reso? Yeah, as I said before, I'm not really a, a, a Reso purist. Yeah, uh, I think uh, for me the output counts. Uh, what are you making? What is uh, the final result? And um, well, actually, it's uh, like uh, swearing in the church. Mm -hmm. um, so you have a, a complete group of 150 Rizzo enthusiasts. And, but I want to actually to point out, to reflect. So uh, to say, for example, it's only Rizzo. It's only one of the possible techniques. Huh? So, and why do we love that technique so much? Huh? So, uh, on a more abstract level, and why uh, there could be a reason not to use it? Huh? And when is Rizzo uh, too dominant? Huh? When, yeah. when, when is Rizzo becoming a kind of a analog Instagram filter? Huh? Yeah. So, huh? because the, it's a very dominant uh, technique. In the outcome of, of work, so I would like to address those questions much more. And uh, so maybe this time it was a bit too early uh, to 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 go more abstract. But now people experience this yeah. and think, oh, oh, maybe. Huh? And then maybe next time we can we can just put more of those things in in it. Huh? So because yeah. we know already the technical things, huh? we know the silver ink and the cyan. Uh, so. It's repeat. We are repeating that every magical rizzo. So, that, but there's more out there, uh, yeah. and uh, and just uh, also be modest. It's it's just a technique. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. It's a tool that can be used. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> okay, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, uh, just thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me about everything uh, here in the really beautiful Charles Naples lab. I've mm -hmm loved being here uh, for the entire conference and to spend a little bit more more time with you so i'm really looking forward to the next event in a couple years yeah well it's only two years so uh, it's very fast yes uh, you start now with the preparations <laughs> thank you for interviewing